Hello, rhetorical listeners. I'm Charles Woods, and this is another episode of The Big Rhetorical Podcast. Today, my guests are Joshua Burford and Megan Sullivan, co-founders of the Invisible Histories Project. So much of the queer experience in America has been framed as we are like scratching and clawing just to get the most basic kind of visibility. And then that, for a lot of people, that is enough. Like if, if this one time you went into a place and someone was really nice to you and affirmed your identity, then that's that's great. And it is nice when that happens, but we're trying to think much bigger than that. Like right. We want your people to envision how their community has been so that we can figure out where we're going. And I think that for me as the archivist for the project, like that's my goal is to let the material, I'll do the work of locating it with our students and our partners so that people then come in and envision and you know really study it and sort of figure out like how the pieces fit together. Josh is an award-winning historian, archivist, and educator with over 20 years of experience creating stronger communities for queer and transgender people across the U.S. He is perhaps best known for his work to preserve and make accessible the queer history of the American South through the development of archival collections and oral histories. Megan has over 10 years of experience in community outreach, grant management, organizational development, and social justice education. These two form the Invisible Histories Project, also known as IHP. We're just trying to give Southern queer identity back to Southern queer people because we should be proud of what we've done. IHP is designed to be a repository for the preservation of the history of LGBTQ life first in the state of Alabama and then in the entire Southeast. The archive will preserve, collect, and protect the living history of the diversity of the queer community, both urban and rural. Using the Alabama site as a model, IHP is currently expanding into Mississippi and Georgia with aims to reach the entirety of the Southeast within 10 years. IHP focuses on four key elements related to advancing LGBTQ Southern history. Community engagement, archiving, preservation, research and scholarship, education, and professional development and best practices. And while they continue to fight for visibility, it's not always an easy thing to do. The IHP wants to develop a timeline of LGBTQ history in each state across the South, along with community academic programming to highlight our findings. Additionally, create experiential learning experiences for students in archives, history, preservation, and research. And they also wish to establish an off-campus, centrally located museum to display these histories as a part of a larger conversation. Additionally, IHP seeks to create a counter-narrative to the lacking South and provide a sense of community and heritage for LGBTQ people. I met Megan when we were both working at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB, back in 2016, and when she was facilitating Safe Zone training. While I hadn't met Josh before our interview, I could tell based on the work I see them doing on social media, more academics need to know about this project. That leads me to partnerships. If you listen to this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast and you can see yourself working with Josh and Megan, I implore you to reach out to them and help them expand this important project. This conversation really has been a highlight of doing this podcast so far. I'll check back in with you in a bit. 
I'm Megan Sullivan. I am one of the co-founders of the Invisible Histories Project. Uh, we have working titles, but I feel like co-founders are is the easy way to sum it up. Um, I am over research and development primarily, but you know, because there's only two of us, as we'll talk about later at IHP, the ro- roles kind of get blurred a little bit. <laughs> I'm Josh Burford, uh, also one of the co-creators of IHP. Um, My role in the project is archiving. And so I'm researching, working with our student archivists, locating collections, working with donors, um, digging through old crap, you know, (laughs) and then finding those sort of jewels that kind of exist within that. Um, It's been it's been an interesting project because this is this is the fourth archive that I've worked on. It's certainly the largest LGBT archive I've ever worked on. But um, yeah, it's just it's it offers a lot of challenges every single day for sure. I looked at your website, so I know a little bit about you all, but not a whole lot. <laughs> uh, Josh, you said you've worked in multiple archives. Could you give us a little bit of an example of where you've worked and what you've worked on? Yeah. So uh, when I was teaching and working in student affairs at the University of Alabama, I built two LGBT archives uh, between 2008 and 2012. Uh, the first is called Miller Stevens Collection. It was a history of the first LGBT student group in the state of Alabama, which was at the time called the Gay Student Union. They were getting near a 25 anniversary. I think it was 25 or 30. And it seemed like a really good time to try to you know, find their materials because a 25-year-old organization is a pretty good sweet spot. You know, every, their founders are still alive. The documents are easily accessible if you dig a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, that has a really high dollar value for archivists because there's so much stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first of something is always really good to archive because it sets a sort of tone. Like if we could find this material, we could find other material too. Um, and then I built a collection called the Radical Zine Archive, which mm-hmm. was a mostly a collection of queer zines from Appalachia. And we built, uh, I think it's a fairly robust collection of queer zines. A lot of it was really young, like things that were happening on the ground. We actually got started because we got sent a zine from a Christian college in Tennessee. Oh. Uh, the student who wrote it actually published it and it got kicked out. And so they sent us the zine and said, you know, hey, we know you guys are doing queer history down there. Do you want this copy? And it sort of like kicked off the collection of these queer zines from oh. Oh. You know, deep south. And then I spent six years in Charlotte building uh, an LGBT archive uh, in partnership with the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And it was uh, it was a great it was really a great opportunity for me to kind of expand my work because again, you know, the, the archives are just sort of like getting a little bit bigger each time. Mm-hmm. And this was a history of Charlotte. And so a much bigger project. And then, so I built that project and then it's called the King Henry Brockington collection. It's named after three archivists, uh, sorry, three activists from North Carolina that's whose activism spanned late 1960s to mid 2015. Okay. And so that project is kind of what got Megan and I thinking about IHP in the first place. You know, I came to Alabama to give a talk at UAB when Megan was working there. And then we sat down and said, you know, would it be possible for us to do something like I was doing in Charlotte, but for the whole state? (laughs) So go much bigger. Yeah. And so that's kind of how we ended up doing IHP the way we're doing it now. So I'm not sure if you met Megan at UAB or if you or if you knew each other beforehand, but I met you, Megan, at UAB when she was working on. I think she was working on a master's degree at that time. No, PhD. PhD. Are you still working towards that PhD? 
Unfortunately, yes. Oh. <laughs> I'm taking my comps this semester, and then we shall be on to dissertating. That's so exciting, and congratulations. <laughs> Tell us, Thank what you. program are you in, and what a little bit about the things that you study and focus on, your work there. Uh, so my PhD program is in Educational Studies of Diverse Populations, which is in the School of Education. We're the first cohort um, to do that. Or my group is the first cohort, and I think there's two or three after me now. And basically, we just, you know, examine issues of diversity and identity as it relates to education. So for me, it's higher education. I'm actually going to be doing a evaluation on IHP. You know, as we'll talk, we are expanding from Alabama into Mississippi and Georgia. Right. We have three university partners, as well as a number of community partners mm -hmm. uh, that are also organizations, libraries, things like that. And so I'll be looking at, at kind of how this co-production of academics and knowledge is happening. And if IHP is, is doing our job in engaging universities, but also being community centered first and foremost. So that's kind of what I'm going to be looking at with with that degree. I'm also adjunct um, in women's studies, women and gender studies at UAB. So I teach. Actually, we've been seeing my students out a lot. I teach online wow. and we were at a bar the other <laughs> this weekend. Saturday. And a student was like, hey, I saw your credit card name. Uh, are you, did you by a chance teach at UAB? <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, I do. And luckily, she loved the class and made an A. So it was OK. I was like, don't spit in my drink if you failed. But, this is like, it sounds like some like reverse FERPA thing going on here. Like, <laughs> like you can't we can't acknowledge this in public. Come on now. Bizarro FERPA. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things I really appreciate, and, and as I've come to learn more about your organization and the work that you do, is that I think that you consider yourself a community-based project. And so I wondered, could you talk a, a bit about how the Invisible Histories Project initiated, and specifically, what is your mission and, and your goals? Well, I mean, our primary mission is the location and preservation of deep south southern LGBT history. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want to make certain that the record of the diversity of the community, its political activism, its individual histories, its groups, its pride festivals are being preserved because they don't exist other places. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so few collections that include our history that if we don't do it, then no one's going to do it. And so our primary concern is location and preservation. Our secondary concern is access. So if we have it, and we've organized it and it's in a repository, then we need people to see it. So it's not enough that we've located it. We want okay. people to engage with it. And so go and look at it and read and learn and then let that learning help people imagine, you know, what the next phase of the Queer South looks like, informed mm -hmm. by its history. You know, what could we do now based on what we have done in the past, which I think as a historian is the, the piece that's missing. People mm -hmm. always feel like they're making things from scratch. And in some ways they are. Mm. It's too hard to be the first of something. And so if you're if you know that you're not, if you know that you come from a long line of political activists or people who've organized workers' rights or uh, anti-racist work and it's within the queer community, then people can do a lot of things. And so that's what we that's where we started. I think what's made IHP different is that we're trying to, and I think successfully, leverage our partnerships to make the work go faster, to make it streamlined, and to make it more accessible fat and quicker. 
because we're working with higher ed partners because higher ed has an infrastructure. Mm. We're working with state archives and public libraries because they have infrastructure. So instead of us spending 10 years trying to raise money to build a building now, we can work with existing repository partners that we have vetted that are engaged in the work that we're doing with queer history. And then the material goes there and it's protected and it's safe and it's being looked after. And people can actually go into a physical building and look at it or go onto our website and look at it. And so we are a community-based project. We are going out, collecting our community's history and then engaging with the community in the entire process of archiving, which a lot of people don't get to do. Mm. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, archiving remains kind of a mystery. Or if they know what archives are, they feel like archives are only for the super influential or the super wealthy, you know, the Vanderbilts or things that are going into, you know, national museums and they don't see the benefit and what local collecting looks like. Like what is an individual activist who lived in South Alabama? We see a huge amount of importance in their collection, but maybe they don't. And I think part of that is because of internalized homophobia, mm. you know, like, so much of the queer experience in America has been framed as we are like scratching and clawing just to get the most basic kind of visibility. And then that, for a lot of people, that is enough. Like if, if this one time you went into a place and someone was really nice to you and affirmed your identity, then that's that's great. And it is nice when that happens. But we're trying to think much bigger than that. Like right. We want your people to envision how their community has been so that we can figure out where we're going. And I think that. For me, as the archivist for the project, like that's my goal is to let the material. I'll do the work of locating it with our students and our partners, so that people then come in and vision, and you know, really study it and sort of figure out like how the pieces fit together. Yeah, and you know, thinking about our our partners and you know, community partners and then other institutional partners. I think it's easier for us to explain who we are and what we do to community folks. Yeah. Because we're we're very weird and unique, and you know, we're most LGBTQ nonprofits are direct service. So they're providing some sort of outreach, health services, something like that. And then, you know, higher education or education in general is providing traditional types of education and research. And we're and then archives, of course, archiving, preserving materials. And we are doing all and none of that. Like we're doing parts of a little bit of each of that, but not in the way that it's been done before. So oftentimes we have to explain who we are by talking about what we don't do um, because it's really kind of hard to narrow it down. There's so few things that exist in this way. And so getting community trust was paramount for what we've done. So we've used word of mouth, grassroots style conversations. You know, when we go and pick up a collection or talk to a donor, we ask them for their 10, 15 folks that we should talk to and ask them to send text messages and Facebook messages and make phone calls. And that's how we've gotten introduced to people to gain community trust. And then we go, like Josh said, and vet our institutional partners and our libraries and the places. So they're trusting them through us. Mm -hmm. And we act kind of as an intermediary between community people and institutional folks to make sure that the materials getting preserved and then ultimately researched because we believe very, very strongly that materials that are inaccessible and are sitting in a box are not totally worthless, but they're not as worthwhile as they could be if they were accessible and being researched. They're just stuff in a box at that point. So we really want to make sure that we're kind of completing that loop for the materials. 
we are fully going after collection. But so it, both do. I mean, it's a little bit of both, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I'll pick up the phone or email someone that I've never met before and introduce myself. And then I don't like to use the word hound them until we get their collections. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm I'm pretty tenacious about locating new material. Yeah. And I think part of what why we have so many repository partners is because people have the, the, the least amount of time to actively research collections. And so they're waiting for stuff to come in and we just don't wait. Yeah. Yeah, we go and we also go to people's houses, too. If they're like, I don't know what you need. Can you come help me? One of the things that you know we've been talking about a lot is grief and like how queer communities, particularly older folks, have not been able to grieve publicly. And so that means that they also haven't grieved privately. And sometimes, you know, Josh will roll up into a house with somebody's partner passed away 10, 15 years ago, expecting it to be a little emotional, but sentimental in some sort of way. But then the person hasn't opened that door in 15, 20 years. Yeah. And it's the first time they've gone through that box. And so Josh is having to like grief process with people while you're going through archival material. So, you know, there's a lot of things that you just, and then Josh, of course, got pneumonia from a moldy box recently. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of hazards that one wouldn't think in the archive business. Yeah. <laughs> it's on the body for sure. Yeah. Right? It's been a rough couple of weeks inhaling 40 year old mold. When you were talking, you, you said the, 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 the queer South in this specific moment. And it made me think about is the South as a, as a place and a space, is it an, an inherently queer space and place the south oh one thousand percent in fact i think the american south is the most queer part of this entire country you gotta like, tell me why the, ex the you know the experiment of america right this idea that we could have a theoretical representative democracy that individual people could have their voices heard you know that this experiment not without huge problems but the american south exists as this sort of queer nexus mm. because we have been one completely ignored because the south is mostly rural so we have so much poverty in the south there's so many just i mean think about just the physical geography of mississippi right. you know small towns mid-sized city places but you know huge gaps of tracts of land where very few people live so when when this country decided at the turn of the 20th century that it would go fully urban in that effort to go urban the poverty of the South made it seem less important. Mm -hmm. And so we have spent so much time focused on New York and Chicago and LA and these sort of, you know, large places, but the South retained its identity. It retained its small town feeling where if you live in a town of 300 people, your identity in that town is, doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like it's a part of a community of individual people. So, for a lot of time, a lot of times in the South, we've talked about this a lot, I think, is the sort of economics of sexual identity. Like if a if a gay or lesbian person was performing a vital function for a community, they were allowed to be gay and lesbian people, even if it was mitigated, mm -hmm. even if they couldn't always be as out as they wanted to. They found a community to live in. You know, one of the greatest tragedies, I think, right now is that we have told queer young people that if they leave the South, to go to bigger places that they'll have more resources. And it turns out to be the opposite. Mm. If you're a trans kid from Mississippi and you have an infrastructure and support system of other queer and trans people, which exists all over the South, 
If you leave and go to New York, now you're one person in the millions of people. So you're a faceless entity. You've left this small town, which may have felt stifling, to go to this big And your opportunities don't manifest the way that they think they do. And so the South just is queer. And we have had workers' rights. We were the nexus of the civil rights movement. Right. There's been queer organizing in the Deep South since the 40s. Mm. I mean, we've been liberatory. We've had liberationist movements in the South. And yet we exist as this cautionary tale. Mm. You know, we're a, we're a specter. You know, at least we're not in Mississippi or at least we're not in Alabama. Right. And somehow that, that's the measurement of success. That As long as they're not us, they're doing great. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're, I'm sitting in Birmingham thinking, why the hell would anybody live in New York City? That sounds awful. You mm. can keep it. I don't want to live there. If you want to live there, knock yourself out. But I don't see anything laudable about leaving the South because I can be queer here mm. if I want to. And people are queer here. Yes. The, the South has the largest percentage of queer and trans people in the out of all the regions in the country. A third mm. of us live here. Mississippi has the highest number of same-sex um, parenting families uh, out of any state. And oh, so wow. there are a lot of queer folks here, and we always have been here. It's that our litmus test is the West Coast and the East Coast. Mm -hmm. The big, wealthy, large urban areas have become the way that we measure. Are you Ellen DeGeneres? Are you those folks that have access to wealth and mm. resources and a very particular white kind of you know upper middle class, upper class sensibility? Like, are you, is that our measurement or is our measurement, you know, a group of people in Birmingham, Alabama in the 70s who got together and formed an LGBTQ resource center just in somebody's house, mm -hmm. you know, that led to a newspaper that led to pride that led to all of these things. Like what is our measurement of success and what is our measurement of queer? I think right. that's what we need to be thinking about. Like, why are we measuring based off of these very elitist, very disconnected ideals of what it means to be successfully queer? Right. One of the things that was just brought up in your conversation, and that's kind of fascinating to me as a Southerner born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, is that it sounds like some of the more recent research that you suggest, it suggests that um, this idea of like, for me, it seemed like a queer migration to Atlanta growing up in the 90s. Like, uh, that's what it and having queer people in my family. Like, that's what it felt like I was watching as a Southerner. And now it suggests that some of the more recent research is pushing back against that idea that cities and urban life, it, it, it's not so much of a, um, a welcoming space or a place for queer people to be visible. Well, yeah, especially, I mean, there's so much, you know, part of the reason why people left the country and moved into cities at the turn of the 20th century was for anonymity. Like yeah. they wanted to vanish into that so they could have more freedom of choice. Mm. Right. And so they, they wanted to live in an apartment building with neighbors they didn't know because then they could be whatever the hell they wanted. Um. But that was an important choice people made. The problem is that that every, if everyone's searching for anonymity, then you can't have community. Mm. Like there's just no way to do it. And so the community that people had, I mean, even in the big cities in the 20s was all identity based. It's it's the Harlem Renaissance. Right. It's mm. the queer clubs in Brooklyn. It's the it's the working class neighborhoods in San Francisco. Like when people realized they needed more community, they got smaller instead of bigger. It's just now that we've 
so much of our American identity is built into the fabric of these urban spaces that we have forgotten that we are not a monolith. Mm. There isn't a queer monolith. There's all these ways that we can be queer. We're just trying to give Southern queer identity back to Southern queer people because we should be proud of what we've done in the past. And it's also extremely complicated. As white middle-class folks who've gone through a lot of higher education, it is much easier for us to negotiate like the complicated history of being queer and being Southern. And there's a lot of critiques and a lot of internal, you know, questioning that we need to be doing about our legacy and about the real violence and histories that we have now and in the past. Like those things aren't being negated by us saying, hey, we're more complicated than these stereotypes of a left behind South. You know, we're not all just these white supremacists, you know, uh, backwoods, homophobic, although I am backwoods, uh, you know, folks <laughs> that, that that there is a very nuanced um, community and organizing happening here. When we when we rely on those stereotypes, we are reinforcing them because we are saying that, well, if the South is all racist and all backwards, then then we are all white and then we are all this. And we are all that. And it completely erases the work and the identities of folks who have been fighting since day one, creating communities in a, an environment where you don't have those type of resources. And instead of doing that, let's pay homage to those folks and the past that got them where they were mm-hmm. and are. I mean, think about the think about the class privilege of saying, well, if you don't like living in the South, just leave. Yeah. And somehow if it's just that easy pack it up and go somewhere and rent an apartment and have a deposit and have good credit and do all those things that's not how life works right. like not for a lot of people certainly not for people in our community that are at risk we'll be right back with more from megan and josh right after this would you like to join charles on the podcast The Big Rhetorical Podcast, Emerging Scholar Series, is a unique series of podcast episodes specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. The Big Rhetorical Podcast, Emerging Scholar Series, offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a vast catalog of dialogues, a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Moreover, our Emerging Scholar series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. For scholars and practitioners, the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar series offers the opportunity to gauge the future of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication by learning more about the research of graduate students and less seasoned scholars. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to the community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity, 
in localizing knowledge and strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor.fm. If you would like to be featured on an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series, or if you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook. Email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Welcome back. One of the fascinating things about my conversation with Megan and Josh was the passion they had for this project. I particularly appreciated that Josh affirmed that the South is inherently queer. That's quite the affirmation for a long legacy of queer artists and performers working in Atlanta, Birmingham, and rural towns across the South. As a community-based project, you have like a ton of partners. You have financial pro- partners, academic partners. Could we talk a bit about some of these partnerships? Um, perhaps we might start with the academic institutions that you're working with. We've got, and it's so funny because Josh and I started this, one, because we love the work and this is what we wanted to do, um, but also because we were completely fed up with being in higher education in a formal way. Okay. We had reached, we had reached <laughs> yeah. our end and we we knew that there, we wanted to keep working connected to the, the goals, the bigger kind of broad goals of higher ed, but we just couldn't be in it like that anymore. And so we reached out to different people we knew that did have institutional investments and that we trusted um, and came up with three partners. We are working with the University of Alabama College of Arts and Sciences through their American Studies Department. Mm -hmm. They're our fiscal sponsor for our Andrew Mellon grant. We got a $300,000 Andrew Mellon grant to um, expand IHP from uh, Alabama into Mississippi and then Georgia over two years. So they're yeah, it was exciting We because that was in our first year that we got that. And then we um, so we weren't big enough. We were baby. We just we, we just got our 501c3 and just started collecting and we had to use them as a, a fiscal sponsor. So they're our partner in Alabama, in Mississippi. It's the University of Mississippi um, there. We've got their Department of History, their their Southern Studies um, Center for Southern Studies and then their Sarah Isom Center. We've got a lot of folks there that are researching for us, getting collections. They're doing a really big oral history project in Mississippi that's super cool. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, and it's they're, they're doing uh, like almost the whole state and up into Tennessee, I believe, as well. And then um, we're also in Georgia through the University of West Georgia. Um, their Department of Public History is our primary partner there, and they'll be looking at Georgia, with the exception of most of Atlanta and the metro area around Atlanta, there's some stuff happening there. There's some folks doing some collecting there. So we're going to be focusing mostly on, I guess, rural. There are some bigger cities in in Georgia, but non-Atlanta, Georgia. So those three states, again, as a Southerner, 
that is like the belt of the deep south. Those are the states that I would say, yeah, this is the deep south. So you're here and you're working and you're expanding. Where else do you plan to go? What are other sites of, of examination and archiving that you all want to explore? How much money you got? Uh, <laughs> great answer. <laughs> I mean, we would be happy with an IHP site in, in every state in the South. Sure. And, and we've identified 13 states as part of our network that we work with. So and even that's not a consensus. It was mostly an arm wrestle about what counts as the South. But yeah. um, I mean, we... It, Anywhere that we're needed, we would like to be. Um, I mean, if you're asking like what states are we, would we like to be in, all of my choices <laughs> have to do with trying to challenge the work to see how, how much we can refine it. Okay. Like I think, I think archiving in a state like Tennessee is really interesting because it offers a very difficult geographic challenge because it's such a big state. And there's so much queer history there that I would love the challenge of seeing how the model for HP works in a state like that. You've got South Carolina, which has this really interesting in it. Um, and that state is it also has some geographic challenges, but it feels more connected. Um, then you've got some West Virginia. I mean, I know Megan and I both talked about we would love to be in West Virginia because there's so there's so little support for the amazing people that are working in that state and so sort of lending ourselves to that. So there's almost nowhere we wouldn't go in the South. It's really just places that, you know, don't need us necessarily. Yeah. And we're not competition-y. Like we're not doing the no. nonprofit scarcity model where we're fighting for resources. So in a lot of these places, there are smaller things happening. And so as we move and grow, we'll have to figure out how to work with existing folks if they want us there or if they just want our support in some kind of way, because we just want the, the materials preserved and accessible. That's our, our primary goal, however that needs to look. Yeah. As you expand, which I'm sure that you will, and you go into a state like North Carolina, which has recently come under a ton of controversy concerning their transgender bathroom bill. How, yeah. does, this, how does an organization like IHP work and archive in that sort of atmosphere, both geo, both thinking of like that as a space and a place to do this work. I mean, for me, that is like it's a, it's a pretty ideal environment to collect in. Right. I mean, when there is that kind of resistance, what you see happen. This is what's always happened in the South. In those moments of when people are pushing back against us, you see people start to get organized in a different way, in a more visible way, and that is a really good place to go in because what you do. You can offer the practicality of let us preserve your movement. Mm. We'll, you know, we'll preserve your emails and we'll preserve your documents and we'll take pictures at your rallies. But in the process of doing that, what we're what we're lending them is the idea that if we see them as an organization that will be around for 10 or 15 years, maybe they'll envision that too. And so they'll start to think further and further ahead. And so we can partner with them that way. Also, you don't just archive the good stuff. Like you have to have the people who hate you too. I mean, that's, that's how you get the full story. People, I think people have forgotten about Jesse Helms. You know, I mean, he was such a central figure to organizing in North Carolina in the nineties. I mean, he was, he was the specter that was sort of creeping up in everyone's bedroom. So if you don't have the, if you don't have the memory of how terrible he was and all the awful stuff he did to people, then you can't really see the context for how we were resisting. Right. And so for me, it's I mean, I'll if, if I'm at a protest 
I'm taking pictures of the queer folks and I'm gonna walk across the street and ask some hateful jackass if I can have their sign for the archive. So that later we'd be like, you remember this terrible thing? And we're like, oh yeah, I remember that. That's why we keep our hate mail. Oh yeah, we definitely keep our hate mail. 100%, we have a file folder that says hate mail on it. Hate mail on it. <laughs> you mentioned zines, emails, things of that nature, both digital and physical materials. I wonder, what are some of the most compelling things that you've collected thus far? And even if it's just like one thing that really sticks out or a collection of things, it's a good day to ask me this question because I okay. so every archivist in the world has what we call a white whale list. It's a list of things that you would like to have, but you know it's going to be near impossible. But it's okay. it's aspirational, right? Okay. And so I have a white whale list that I'm still working on in North Carolina, <laughs> and then I'm developed my white whale list just this morning. We got a, an email from a person in Huntsville who has located one of the items on our white whale list. That's awesome. Oh, no, it's so good. As soon as I saw it, I was like, I nearly got in the car and drove to Huntsville just so I could have (laughs) it. I mean, they can mail it. It's fine. But, yeah, like, and so for me, the most compelling things are newsletters and and, and publications and newspapers, like magazines, because that's really where we unfiltered as queer people said things that were true about our community. Like, we were asking tough questions. We were asking for help. You know, we were providing help. And so this newsletter that we're getting has a terrible name, I admit. And I that's no, perfect. It's beautiful. It's from 1974. Um, it's from Huntsville and it's called Gay Seed, <laughs> which is an unfortunate double entendre, oh, I feel great. like. I'm sure someone thought they were planting a seed. Yeah, I'm right. sure they did. No, I'm they did sure not. sure they did. This was before x and all that. <laughs> <laughs> See, I immediately was like, oh, yeah, you know, Alabama is an agrarian society <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or agrarian economy. <laughs> Maybe that's what they're I mean. And- you know what? There's a lot of fertile land up there. there that's my folks. Land. That's yeah. where I'm from. That's so. right. <laughs> but this guy found a co- there's only one, as far as we know, maybe one, potentially two of these publications. They were done in the 70s. And it was it was so well read that they actually made it into a national publication. There's a book that came out called Out of the Closets, which is this collection of liberationist LGBT writing from men, women, and trans folks from all over the country. And in the back of it is a resource guide. And the only entry for Alabama from 1974 is this newsletter. Mm. So I've been looking for this newsletter for seven years. And so this guy found it in the thrift store. And he saw social media posts. And now we're going to be getting it to digitize and preserve in the collection. But that is why I get up in the morning <laughs> and put on wow. shorts. And go to work. Wow. That's I'm curious about what you think is compelling. Again, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of items that I think are really interesting and they're really good one for getting like our social media influence out there because that's <laughs> what I'm always thinking about like how do we draw in more people through these items we, we try to catalog everything take pictures of things and post about it and the the, the early 1900s gay man from Jefferson County's diary is is a really good one anything older we have a 1920s drag queen uh, that was really and then like a full flapper outfit that was really compelling. But one of the things I enjoy is talking to people that I know or that I've met, you know, since doing this, who are currently doing the work or who are getting in that retirement phase. I'm doing the work and being like, we want your things. And they're like, but why? And that conversation 
about the importance of what they've done and that even though their materials aren't, you know, tea stained and old and, and they're digital, they're still wildly important because it's happening right now. You know, it's a platform for the future. And I, for me, that's one of the, the best things is getting folks to realize the significance of their work in a historical record. Like this is what this means to young people now, to people that will come in the future and just to kind of recognize the work that you do. So nothing specific, but those kind of moments in those collections. Well, and you you said it. I mean, Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia are sibling states. Right. Like we, we're sharing culture, yeah. but we're also sharing people. Here's what I think is funny about what you said earlier. Like, you're right. There is this idea that like certain, you came of age as a gay person in Alabama or Mississippi, you went to Atlanta, mm. you know, either to visit or to live or to whatever. But people from Atlanta were also driving to Meridian, Mississippi yeah. to go to gay bars. They were driving to Jackson. They were going to Tuscaloosa. They were going to Dothan. So that it was a it was a both immigration of E and I. Like we were going back and forth, you know, between all these different places because we were sharing. I mean, there's if you look at drag performers alone, the drag families between Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi are so connected because that's what we did. We were, you know, to your point, we were fertilizing sort of everybody's community in a really good way. And, you know, just real talk as a hillbilly from Alabama, starting with Mississippi and Alabama was strategic. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was yeah. good for us because we're both from Alabama yep. and Mississippi and Alabama share so much in common. But when you think about where it's going to be the most difficult to do this, it's going to be Mississippi and Alabama yeah. because of lack of resources, mm-hmm. because of some of our political climate and things like that. So us testing this here, it was very important. To, to knowing if we could do this elsewhere or if other people could do something similar elsewhere. Right. Uh, you, you bring up this theme that's so important in the work that you all do and the work that the, the scholars in my field and discipline do, and that's localization, right? Mm. So I wonder, how does IHP fit into the fabric of Birmingham culture now? And we can think from a historical perspective as well. Well, I mean, I think, Megan and I have talked about this a lot. There's this interesting commonality between individual donors, and, and this has been true of everything I've ever collected. There's this there's this folder. It's in almost everybody's collection, and it's almost always a collection of newspaper clippings that individual people spent the time on the table with a pair of scissors to cut out articles from every newspaper they could find that had anything about being gay in it, good mm-hmm. or bad. And so to me, what that says is that people at least acknowledge that this stuff is important enough to save and so who are they saving it for right i mean a rainy day the future it's hard to know so i think what what ihp is doing is that we're giving we're giving legs and we're giving energy and we're giving resources to the desire of our own community to know itself and to protect its history and so i think in that way we fit in very well with what's going on in Birmingham and Huntsville and Mobile and Jackson and Atlanta, because people have this urge. If people didn't have this urge, we wouldn't have such a strong social media following. Right. Like it's just an old tote bag, like mm-hmm. by itself. Except that when you put it online and you give it a context, we just so we we posted a picture of a tote bag from Lodestar Books, which was the first gay bookstore in Alabama. It was open in Birmingham, and I'm watching the comments come in. And it's the usual, like, that's really cool and that's super exciting. And then we get a comment from someone who I've never seen before on our social media 
who said, thank you for putting that up. That bookstore saved my life. Mm. Like it gave me a connection to being queer and doesn't expand any more than that. But I mean, that's a, that's the energy, the power of a physical item, right? Like a connection to the past. And I think in that way, I think that's very Southern and very much what Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia are about. And so I think in that way, we're just flag bearers in a lot of ways for the, you know, that desire for people to want to know more. There's something chirotic, I think, about that in terms of, of timing, like flag bearers at the perfect time coming out of this renaissance that Birmingham specifically has kind of undergone over the last decade. I think you're right. I mean, we are definitely in the sweet spot of history right now for the queer South. For whatever reason, we are very interesting to people at the moment. And so people are watching us. They're not just eating our grits. They're also Why like, are they interested, Megan? Why do you think they're interested? Well, I think that <laughs> I think that we're it's, it's a double-edged sword. So that people are interested in the queer South. People who have not funded in the South uh-huh. are saying, oh, well, this is where we want to put our interest now. We want to go back into the South because – a, a lot of it has to do with those stereotypes that we've talked about, but also something that Birmingham and a lot of Southern cities have fallen prey to internally is this deficit model yeah. that the only way that we can get resources and funding and attention from other people is if we talk about how awful our lives are. And so you have people saying, you know, Oh, our, it's so awful and tragic and removed to be queer and Southern that our lives are terrible, that, you know, everything is about death and pain and suffering. And when you say that over and over and over, even if you're well-intentioned and you just are trying to get funding and you're trying to get resources because you feel desperate about it, what happens is your community internalizes that. And if I, as a young person, understand my community to be of pain and suffering, then it will be of pain and suffering. So we hope that we offer a little bit of foundation for community folks as well as other folks to think differently and more nuanced. Like how can we elicit this kind of a response from potential funders and partners by saying, hey, we're here, we're doing this work, we have great community, despite all this other stuff, Mm -hmm. so that we don't get stuck in this poor, pitiful, mean narrative that we internalize and then live out. I also think potentially now, since 2016, the country is seeing what they imagined was only Southern politics, Mm -hmm. now reflected in all 50 states. Mm -hmm. Like this wave of big C conservative ideology, which we've never been able to centerpiece of our of our at least visible national politics and so people are looking to the south to see well holy crap like now now there's conservative backlash in portland and seattle and these places that have don't at least have ignored it until now because they could ignore it sure. and what what could the south teach us about you know about what it means to thrive in this environment and i think people are maybe starting to see that we have something to offer besides our cuisine you know, or our language to make fun of, which is what yeah. people like to do. I mean, everybody's saying y'all now. Like, I need everyone that's not from the South to calm down <laughs> with y'all. Like, that's okay. ours. So you turned to teaching a bit in your last statement. Let's change directions or, or change gears and go there. IHP has training and education opportunities on the website. I think this is so cool. So I wonder, could we talk a bit about the content and then 
Also, we could transition perhaps into thinking about how writing instructors and history instructors and gender studies scholars might bring the IHP into the classroom more generally or specific ideas. I'll let you run with that thought. Okay. Uh, as far as the, the direct like training and education that we provide, Josh and I are both from higher education and have given multiple types of LGBTQ and inclusion bias trainings and workshops for higher education, businesses, healthcare, schools, whatever it is. We, right. you know, we've spent over 15 years yeah. doing that kind of work. In fact, that's how we met at UA mm -hmm. and at University of Alabama. And so, you know, we can offer those, we do those sorts of trainings um, to supplement our nonprofit funding. So we, we, we charge a, a fee based off of a scale, depending on the size of the institution. And we go in and do trainings based on whatever the need is and whatever the environment is. We also can do historical talks, particular to the area or a certain field. Um, and we, you know, do those across the country. Those aren't just kind of local things that we do. We also work with um, universities and other organizations to create programming with them where we, they use IHP materials as, you know, maybe a temporary exhibit or some sort of um, participatory workshop where they invite people in. And so we do all of that stuff um, depending on what folks are looking at. So if people are interested in something like that, they can just email us, contact us through the website, and we can figure out what's best for an institution. And I think people really, you know, I think about Megan, I've seen Megan train a bunch and it's see that people reach out to us and say something like, you know, we want to learn more about gay people in medicine. And then you go and do the training and you realize that isn't actually why they wanted you to come. But they want you to come in because they want to be better at being providers for LGBT people. Mm. So they, they give you a general question and then you come in and, and nuance that. And I think Megan's right. Like, coming in and offering people the opportunity to have frank dialogue with people who have experience is something they don't often get, or if they do get it, it's, I feel like it's removed. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, I work at, we worked in higher ed and I, we would bring in speakers that I think, you know, okay, that person's going to be really cool, but they don't connect with mm. people. And I think that part of what IHP has done for the both of us is that it's allowed us a different level of connectivity um, with our audiences. I, I presented at a conference last week and after my session was over, I probably spent another 45 minutes just sitting down and talking to individual mm -hmm. people oh, because they had so like, all these follow-up questions, right? Well, and then too, one of the things we're finding is as we're increasing, so we have different repositories, archives where our materials being stored, and we try to have multiple ones of those in each state. We also have different organizations that we work with, and we're increasing our higher ed, not just our formal partners, our bigger partners, mm -hmm. but then the ones that we're creating classes with and things like that. And so what we're having to do often, or they're requesting, is because they want to work with the history and they want to do this kind of project, but they don't want to do it poorly. They want us to come in and do trainings to accompany the growth of the project on their training mm -hmm. or on their campus or their, their wherever they are. So we sometimes will go in and just do basic like 101 stuff and then do a little more custom and then kind of walk them through so that folks have the correct vocabulary and historical position to do this kind of work. And so you would ask about classrooms. And so I sure. think for me, in my own coursework, when I first started teaching queer history, because I didn't have access to the Queer South like I wanted, I was using sort of standard, and there's very few of them, granted, but standard sort of queer history textbooks, right? Okay. They were focused on big cities, but not focused on the South. 
now that I've been teaching for a while and I've built <laughs> I've built my own curriculum basically right. by collecting these materials, what I see happening is my students get so excited about reading something local. Like they they want to read something local. And so what we can offer to classrooms is an opportunity to engage their students in a in a different way. Like why look at something that was written 40 years ago if the student doesn't know what's happening right now? So give them something they can discuss now. Because going back to what you said earlier, like I started my teaching career teaching rhetoric and composition. Right. And so it's like sitting in a classroom with students and then giving them something that came from Birmingham from the 70s. They're like, oh, wait, I know where that is. And I know that reference. And they feel more connected to the material. And through that, you can you can really get to that nuance. I, I changed my intro to queer history class a couple of years ago to include about 90 percent primary documents. Oh, and wow. so instead of having them read other people's opinions about queer history, they're reading primary documents from the period that we're studying. And I let the students make the determination about what the people are saying. And the, it's completely changed my classroom environment yeah. because they are a part of it. They're reading something written by someone their own age in the mid 1950s. And that person is saying what we need is more health care. What we need is immigrant rights. What we need is to protect trans people of color. And they're like, we have those same feelings now. And so they get really connected, which I think is the that that nuance is really like what the work is about. Plus, we have practical concerns. I mean, we worked with a class at Auburn University last year, and their students went through a full decade of an LGBT newspaper, studied that paper, talked about its content, and then built a practical research list for us for IHP. So they're doing actual work that benefits a larger community while they're learning in the classroom. So that experiential learning doesn't really happen mm-hmm. as often as people like to pretend. It happens and we can provide that. Yeah. And then two other things for folks, for graduate students and faculty, you know, LGBTQ Southern studies is an emerging field. Sure. And for the, you know, we've been doing this for our two years now. We are at a, a, a level of materials where we need research to happen. We don't have the time. In fact, we're being constantly asked to write things for publications, to look into books. And we do not have that time right now, maybe in the next couple of years. But there's tons of opportunities for folks to engage in research that could be books, could be articles, could really even shift their whole career path if they're looking for it. And it's here in Alabama, it's going to be in Mississippi and it's going to be in Georgia. And we have connections to people across the entire South. Um, Another one that folks that are interested could look into is the Glittery uh, Conference or It's a conference. It's It's happening in Oxford, Mississippi in April of this year, and it's going to be looking at literature and queerness. Um, I think Dorothy Allison is coming to speak, which is super cool. We'll be there. So if people want something like tangible that they can do right now, (laughs) that's a good one. That's a plug that we're not, you know, directly involved in. I like that list. Is there anything else that I have we haven't talked about that you want to talk about now about IHP and the work that you're doing? Uh, Let's start with that. I think it's important for for the folks who will be listening to your stuff to know about uh, Queer History South. Mm-hmm. So the Queer History South Network is representatives from 13 southern states at, who get together every two years at a conference where we talk about issues pertaining to LGBTQ southern history, public history, oral history, archiving, researching, all of those sorts of things. So people who are directly involved either in a formal way at a university or a library or informally in the community in 
queer archiving, history, and preservation. Mm -hmm. So we talk about best practices. We get together. Uh, we will be announcing. I can't. I almost did it, but we will be announcing the next one on February 14th, where it's okay. going to be. It will be in 2020. It'll be in the the end of February 2020. So if people just want to check on our social media and our website, if they're interested in coming, um, we would love to have them there. We're only going to be able to have about 300 people. So, you know, folks will need to to get on it. It's pretty inexpensive because we like for people of varying economic status and varying, you know, positions in their career to be able to come to it. Yeah. Well, you actually provided an easy bridge into my last question, which is where can listeners and potential people who want to be involved with IHP find you online, your, your website, social media, email? How do we get in touch with you? So the, the best place to start is invisiblehistory.org. So invisiblehistory.org has a link to everything um, that we're doing, has overviews, and then our social medias. Everything else, so Facebook, Twitter, no, not Twitter, Facebook, Instagram is Invisible Histories Project. So if okay. you look us up that way, you can find us. We are sort of, kind of, on Twitter um, at IHP South. But we don't use that as much because we're not cool like that. We're old. We're, we're, <laughs> I'm in my 40s. I don't Twitter. Listen, I'm a, I'm a full-fledged millennial, but I just never got into Twitter. Okay. Uh, so those are the, the best places for people to follow us. You know, please share our stuff. Let people know. We get so much material and so much engagement through social media um, that it's become maybe our primary way mm -hmm. of connecting with people. So as we grow, we love for people to be sharing us and definitely be looking for Queer History South announcement very soon. And they can email us directly at contact at invisiblehistory.org. And we answer those emails with them you know, as quickly as we can. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much, Josh and Megan, for joining us for the podcast episode. And I just really enjoy chatting with you all. Okay, rhetorical listeners, that does it for this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I want to thank Josh and Megan from the Invisible Histories Project for joining me today. I look forward to working with them in the future, and you should too. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.